pause because of family commitments, but I also got myself into one of those occasional log jams where I tried to record something that didn't go well and end up saying what I wanted to say and then found it almost impossible to unsay it so that the episode sat like a, an obstacle in front of me and I didn't entirely want to delete it but neither did I want to publish it and that was the original episode 41 which I'm going to endeavour to record again in an entirely unrecognisable form now you will know if you've the patience to have listened to a lot of this 400 plus series of podcasts that I occasionally dip into the thing that I've spent most of my life involved in, namely education. And for reasons that some of you will perhaps recognise, it seems to me that if there is a candidate for something that is self-evident, that we should educate successive generations and indeed ourselves in a more or less lifelong fashion probably is as promising a candidate for self-evidence as you would be likely to find anywhere. After all, if we didn't educate, we would forever have to begin again, like almost all the other species around us. We might inherit some know-how from our genes and that would serve us well up to a point. But beyond that, anything that involved what I suppose you could call a, 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 what is the word? Something that isn't genetic but it is acquired uh, of all sorts, not just intellectual, not just written, but what is communicated by means other than genes, let's call it that, non-genetic inheritance. To be educated, we really need some means of accessing, appropriating that non-genetic material. And that is exactly what most animals, other than ourselves, lack or lack access to. They learn some things by nurture, clearly, as their parents teach them how to do things. But the human species has lifted its capacity to transmit knowledge in a cumulative way out of reach of the sight of any other species that we at least know so far. AI may do better and species on other planets, exoplanets as they're sometimes called, may do better already. We just don't know about it. So let's suppose that it is obvious, self-evident, that we should educate in this non-genetic material. 
Well, then the problem becomes, and it's a really big problem, that all sorts of things tend to get wrapped up in this self-evident envelope that are anything but self-evident. And one of them is the very complex and extensive set of questions around both the what and the how. What should we educate in and how should we go about it? And I've spoken about this in many episodes and I'm not going to repeat all of that. But since we're in the middle of a sequence where I'm thinking about the the dual and duality, I thought it would be interesting to see how education arises or benefits from such an analysis. And where I started with this, which I think is what has broken the logjam that I was otherwise in, is that we don't just take it for granted that education is self-evident. We also take it for granted that the purposes of education and on the heels of that, the content of education and on the heels of that, the methods of education are somehow as inexorably self-evident as the brute fact that we should educate for reasons I've summarised. And that's where I think we should draw at least a breath, press the pause button and say, but are they? Is it? Should we? and ask the question, why? What tends to happen, if you'll forgive an intolerably brief summary of a very complex picture, is that we think that the prevailing assumptions of our culture, and in this context that involves not just culture in the aesthetic sense, but our political and economic and social, familial, moral, philosophical and religious culture too, we tend to assume that the one we inherit isn't quite the only one that there is, but that it is certainly the only one that's really up to snuff, only one that's worth anything. And so we tend to think that the assumptions that our culture in general holds dear are self-evidently the ones that we should pass on. And that then expands the territory, the scope of what is self-evident, to such an extent that it almost defines the entire educational process from start to finish. And again, with the health warning that this is a broad brushstroke thing, we end up in a world where we think that education matters because it provides young people and older people who need to retrain with a set of skills that will enable them to get a job, that will enable them to earn money, that will enable them to live in a lifestyle and to live a life very similar to the ones 
that we have lived in our generation and in many generations before. The pious hope being that in, in the name of progress they may do a little better than we did, go a little further than we went, achieve a little more than we achieved, make a little more than we made, and so be a little more prosperous than we were. And part of the problem that I think is becoming more and more evident right now is that the promise of endless improvement suddenly seems a little difficult to swallow. And so we find ourselves in a position that perhaps we've not been in quite to such, such, such an extent before, although I think that if you look hard enough you'll find always find somebody who was prepared to question what our educational objectives were. But I think that it's possible now to say that one of the things that would be characteristic of our duality is that in the classical, traditional, Newtonian, as we're calling it, side of this duel, we will simply endorse the objectives and values that, his, that historically education has served. And of course, you've heard me say many a time before, it very much endorses a view that there are important people and less important people, clever and, clever and less clever people, people with power and people without, people who are given to lead and people who are given to follow. And all this nonsense, which it is, and so the education system simply reinforces what the religious system and the political system already work to preserve. And so we find that the self-evident what and how of education are simply the what and how that preserve what we've inherited. So we end up with a system where we undereducate the vast majority because they're deemed prima facie not to be worth educating to the best of their abilities and we overeducate a minority because we think that they are in some sense or other predetermined to be the leaders and the movers and shakers of our world. So in that side of the duel, things are very fixed, things are very clear, things are very static in lots of ways. And any attempt to shake the foundations of this educational establishment, and I'll say a little bit about, a bit about the, as you might call it, left-wing side of this in a minute, because I don't think that that really makes much of a difference to this analysis. Any attempt to change the educational presuppositions of this side of things meets hostility and opposition of a very, very strident and deep-rooted kind because changing education radically involves changing the world. Absolutely changing the world from the ground up because you change youth and when you change youth you change the future. I said I'd say a little bit about the, the radical. You see, it's often thought 
that people who are on the left wing of politics, who might be a little more subversive of the educational system than those who are on the right, and after all, having spent 25 years of my life teaching at Eton, I know a little bit about the right. I might not know very much about the left. But it's, even, it's usually assumed that they are on some kind of opposite side of something. But to use the metaphor that I've used many times before, I don't think they are. I think they're just disagreeing about where you put the deck chairs on the Titanic. You know, some people want there to be very plush deck chairs for a few, and some people want there to be nice deck chairs for everybody. But nobody's actually noticed that the deck chairs are actually on a ship that is heading for disaster. And we are heading for disaster, and I don't think there's very much doubt about it. And although I don't want to overstate the case, I don't think it's responsible to understate it either. We are in a terrible mess. And I think that the United Kingdom is in a worse mess right at the moment than many others. But we'll leave that on one side. So I don't think that you can say that because you're a rabid socialist or a rabid capitalist, a Tory or a Labour or even a Lib Dem, I don't think that you can say that you're on opposite sides of the dual space. I think you're all in the same boat, on the same side, and the boat, I'm sorry about the metaphor, is sinking, heading full speed ahead to an iceberg that we really can all see, but simply don't think we need to take seriously. All right, so there again we find that you don't interpret duality in terms of opposition between familiar categories. I've said this often enough, but I guess I'm going to have to go on saying it because habitually we do exactly that. The duality is not between left and right, socialist and capitalist or Marxist and capitalist. They are both on the same side of this duality because both of them in the end, and you only need to look at China or Russia to see this, are essentially supporting a prosumer, producer, consumer, social, political and economic system that is destroying our planet. And at the moment, it's not quite the only horse in town, but it's certainly one of the most important ones and one that's doing the most damage. So if they're all on one side of the dual, duality, what's on the other side? What's on the quantum field theory come general relativistic side of this particular duality for education? And here, I want to push something that I've been trying to push in my dotage for a long time. Certainly, and certainly forlornly, in all my Chinese adventures, 
but also more radically, even as in the times where I was ahead. And for some time prior to that. And what I've been pressing for is what I've called, and you'll have heard this before if you've listened to enough episodes, interest-driven education. In other words, not to presuppose what purpose education serves. To allow children to explore what is possible, perhaps even discover, create, invent things that hitherto have not been possible, and then to observe, this is your professional role as a teacher, to observe what they learn and using curriculum mapping to decide what they have failed to learn in pursuing their interests and engineering, designing sensible ways that will enable them to fill such gaps in a way that means that they do end up knowing everything that's worth knowing. Not everything, of course, but in relation to childhood and adolescence and so forth, as much of what can be known as they can be led to know, but to do it in a way that allows their interest to pursue its goals and therefore to engage their enthusiasm, their energy, their love of learning. And on this side of the duality, this I suppose is where we can see some similarity with our physics parallel. On this side of the duality, who each child is, what each child is conceived as needing to become, becomes intrinsically much less clearly defined, much vaguer, much more quantum mechanical much more probabilistic, because we simply don't presuppose that we know what those endpoints are. And so you find, you will find, that children will pursue interesting things and things that they like, and you will not allow yourself, or indeed them, to be diverted or subverted by the sorts of values that we mentioned earlier that really almost entirely define what's going on in the classical side of this duality. In other words, it will not be that they can get good qualifications but that which they will hate getting to obtain qualifications and degrees that will give them a job that they'll hate doing in order to be able to afford to buy things that do not satisfy, to eat things that do not suppress hunger, and to drink things that do not quench thirst, to use my prophetic parallel. In other words, what we're saying is we will not allow ourselves to presuppose the needs that education should serve because we will instead allow young people, children, young adults, and frankly, older adults, and even ourselves, good Lord, 
even ourselves, to pursue what interests us or them and see what happens. And this isn't just about This isn't just about freedom for them. It's also based in a very strong conviction that if you give people freedom to pursue their interests, to do their own things, to dream their dreams, they will always surprise you, always come up with something far more interesting than you could have engineered for them yourself. Because children, young adults, and if we could just find the magic key to the door between these dualities, even ourselves, are capable of living fulfilled, happy lives if we give ourselves a chance. If we rid ourselves of some of the ludicrous assumptions that dictate what an education is supposed to be when it's run by the likes of the Department for Education, which is itself driven by a mistaken belief in what constitutes national prosperity and a mistaken expectation that when you limit and control education to the extent that we do, and we do it to a very, very considerable extent, that when you limit and control education to the extent that we do, you will produce long-term prosperity of a kind that would not be accessible by any other means. My argument is far greater prosperity will be accessed if you give people their heads, if you let them and encourage them and facilitate them to do and doing the things that they are most enthusiastic about. There are just no limits to what human ingenuity can do if you give it a chance. And of course, to go back to the remarks that I made at the end of the beginning of this when I was talking about the other side, that's exactly what frightens politicians it's what frightens teachers, it's what frightens parents, and it's why these kinds of educational reforms fight, have to fight very hard to get a hearing and even harder to get off the ground. People don't understand what I am saying here. They do not believe, or perhaps they do believe and are frightened of, the kind of world that might arise if you let people have their head, dream their dreams, follow their dreams, pursue their interests, and let the education take care of itself, that being so. Well, I do believe that. I wish I'd learnt it, known it, realised it 50, 60 years ago my life would have been very different. But very, very few people, well, I think, I think people can see it, but I think that they immediately then get fearful about it. Parents get fearful about it because they're worried that their children 
won't earn a good living or won't do something respectable, so-called. Other people worry about it because they see it as subversive. Yet more will worry about it because they will see it as potentially overthrowing the social order. Because if you give people their heads, if you change the value system that is used to assess success and failure in education in order to pursue the kinds of values that I've been outlining, then you will not end up with the same people at the top of the heap. And believe it or not, I'm sure you won't, or perhaps some of you will, the existing system is designed to keep the same people at the top of the heap. Well, you say, if you worked at Eton for 25 years, you were doing that. But it's not quite as simple as that. Because the problem is that in order to have the space, the freedom to think differently, you also need to be in a place where it's permissible to be yourself. And in many schools, it isn't. Of course, teachers will say, well, this is a recipe for disaster. Children are far too much themselves, far too indifferent to what we want them to learn, what they need to know. And so all you'll be doing is making matters worse and it's bad enough already. But my argument is the opposite. My argument is that one of the reasons why the children in school are so difficult to control, so difficult to educate, so difficult to motivate, is precisely that we are trying to get them to learn what we think they need to know with little or no reference to what they are interested in knowing or learning or doing. So is it a surprise? Is it a surprise that we have to control, not quite with carrot and stick these days, but certainly with things like exclusion orders, detentions, and all sorts of other nonsenses. We have to control a population that is acting out in a way that basically says we don't want what you are trying to foist on us. And it's only a very cynical point of view that says, well, that's because they don't really want anything at all. In fact, what they want is to be given the space to explore their own lives in their own way. And every single one of them will do that differently. OK, you're, I can hear you saying, well, that's a council of perfection. Well, perhaps it is. But a council of perfection has got to be better than a than a council of doom and at the moment I don't see anything other than doom certainly for this country because we've suffered from first of all a belief in leadership then a dearth of it and then a bunch of people who you wouldn't trust to lead you out of a paper bag for so long that it's almost impossible to remember when it wasn't true and particularly so if you're young. So there is a duality here. 
on one side of it there is pretty well everything that we're currently doing and pretty well everybody who's currently doing it whether they be left or right Tory or Labour socialist or capitalist you name it Ooh, I just got attacked by a conker falling off a tree and on the other there is not just a new way of looking at the same thing. I need to say more about that because I think that there is a potential for misunderstanding. Let me briefly say it, at least so that I remind myself to say it rather more forcefully later in another episode. Being attacked by a conquer has momentarily thrown it out of my head. Let me come back after a jingle to what I was about to say. Yes, I needed to say something that merits an episode of its own. So let me just mention it here and then leave it. But the two sides of a duality are not in the way that Sir Michael Atiyah rather suggests, just two different ways of looking at the same thing. The whole point here is that if you have different ways of seeing, different ways of conceptualizing, different ways of, in other words, looking, you change what you look at. Now, I don't mean that in the silly way that it's sometimes said by philosophers that we actually make the world. I have no understanding that we change the nature of the underlying reality of the world by the way we think of it, it is what it is. But insofar as the way we think about it is part of that world, and the way we think about it is very much definitive of how we see it, so the way we see it does, to all intents and purposes, change the world we see. Undeniably, even if the underlying reality barring the bits of it that are involved in the way we know it, even if the, the underlying reality is essentially unchanged. So what I'm suggesting here is that different ways of seeing, different dualities, different sides of the same dual, create new worlds, at least as far as we, as their inhabitants, are concerned. They inevitably leave the underlying stuff of the world largely unchanged, but they do change the way we relate to it. And that is, in the end, all we've really got any power to control. So we will leave the rest of the world that we can't change to itself, and change the bits that we can insofar as we can change the way we think about them. And that is what it means to shift from one side of a duality to the other. That everything changes because the way we think of it changes. And the way we think of it defines the world in which we live.
even if, let me repeat it again, the underlying reality of the world remains unchanged. This is a subtlety. Well, it's not even that subtle, but it's something that an enormous number of people simply don't seem to be able to get their heads around. The world can be one thing, and the way we see it can be many things, many different ways of seeing, and they do make a material difference to how the world is for us. It's simply not deniable that that is the case. And nobody's claiming that the way we think changes the underlying stuff, the urstoff, as I've called it, of the world. I'm simply saying that if you want to live in a better world, one way of getting there is to learn to think of it differently. And that's why this duality business is so important. That if we can lay claim to, come to understand the world differently, then at least as far as we are concerned, the world in which we live fundamentally changes. Thank you for listening.